I was a teenager, I used to look back at all the stories of the Great War and World War II and all all the action and heroism and drama of those times and sort of curse myself because I lived in such dull times, you know, back in the 90s, everything was bright and shiny and optimistic, um, a real golden age. But it was also, you know, kind of boring. And I sort of wished that I lived in a time that was more interesting when global war threatened the horizon and there was the opportunity for heroism. And here we are, uh, possibly on the verge of a great power conflict between Russia, China, the US, possibly other belligerents, India and Iran might come to mind, Turkey, um, and possibly we're already right at the beginning of it. It might have started maybe a year ago, maybe several years ago. Uh, what does world war look like in the era of te mass telecommunications, of uh, disinformation campaigns, of automation and AI and bioengineering? Um, of fifth-generation warfare, a topic that has been discussed quite a bit over the last year or two, but which I don't think is well understood. And I hope that we can shed some light on some of those topics today. Um, and with that, I'm going to open the floor. I'm going to suggest, maybe Grant, do you want to go first? First, I'm particularly interested in the 5GW topic. And I think you probably have more insight to that than anyone else here. Uh, that's very flattering, John. I don't know that I do have more insight, but I, I think about it a lot. And, um, you know, I, my, you know, what I'm thinking today is kind of be colored. I'm reviewing, uh, an article that I can't, you know, talk about who wrote it and stuff, but it's, it's absolutely blowing my mind on previous doctrine in the spiritual domain of warfare and how we've done this before. Like that's how we won the cold war is a thing called project solarium and, uh, president Eisenhower getting together and coming up with this supra national, uh, grand strategy. I don't mean like supranational in the sense that, you know, the, uh, global homo supernet supernatural. I mean, um, like a domain above grand strategy, the spiritual domain and getting uh purpose aligned at echelon throughout the country, uh, in, in order to contain, uh, the Soviet union and, you know, fifth generation warfare is just another, you know, when you're looking at the generations of warfare, it's just a framework to try and understand and wrap your head around what's going on. And. I think it's actually a lot more straightforward to think of fifth generation warfare as uh, just speaking to the complexities in modern information operations and telecommunications technology and how that interacts with the spiritual domain. Because the spiritual domain's always existed. Will, like the enemy's will, has always been the most important thing because once the enemy's will is broken, that's the decisive point in any conflict. And now we're in a weird position where, you know, we have the post-West, you know, global homo hegemon that has, you know, no will, you know, we, we have, we don't have, we're not aligned spiritually and it's why we can go to Afghanistan and get wrecked by the Taliban, um, or go to Vietnam and get wrecked by the Viet Cong because 
uh, they were spiritually aligned. I mean, especially the Taliban. And so um, it it doesn't matter so much how much how many economic resources you have. Like not, none of that stuff matters at the end of the day. At, at the end of the day, you're going to stop employing those resources if you lose the will to fight. And if you don't have a specific reason to be fighting, you know, and there's like general principles that are tied into the spiritual domain where if you're attacking or doing immoral things, you know, that's, that, that works against you. So, you know, we're, we're talking about World War Three. I'd like to think that World War Three isn't going to happen. Like there's not going to be a World War Three because we're not the only, uh, institution you know, in the, in the West that has a problem in the spiritual domain. Um, you know, the, the Russian Federation faces it, the Chinese, like they're based on communism, like they have their own problems. And the idea that things are going to spill over into a fight that people are going to perpetually keep pushing resources into, um, you know, barring the outbreak of nuclear war or something like that. I don't, I think it's just going to continue to be these regional conflicts until, uh, somebody on the side of good, um, does a new project solarium and gets purpose aligned with kind of doing the right thing. And I, you know, I hope that's going to be America at some point because, uh, we do have a really good foundation in the origins of our country and what has traditionally been American being and the spirit of America has been uh, a good thing in the past and we're just disconnected from that. And that's why we're, you know, responsible for, uh, so much stupidity lately. Um, Harrison. Well, I've got a, a question and a comment about that. So for, cause I'm not familiar with uh, project solarium, is it, but I'd be interested to know how much of that unity can be generated you know kind of um and what the conditions are that it can that can come about because now this this gets to my comment i i wrote an article several weeks ago based on um a book i read by peter peter turchin war and peace and war and it it's it's about uh, the rise and fall of empires so the conditions that go to go together to to the creation of an empire and then all the conditions that accompany its decline and collapse and the, the concept that he focuses on the most in the book is the one uh, kind of borrowed from Ibn Khaldun, um, Asabiya. That's kind of the, it's like a unifying principle. It's a, it's the, the sense of togetherness. And he says for him, that's an essential feature of both imperial genesis and in imperial uh, disintegration. Um, the reason the empires are able to coalesce is because of that, um, that unified, uh, that that unified feeling among the peoples within the empire, and of course it could be a small region like you know Rome went from a city to to a world empire, uh, you know Mediterranean world empire, and it it did that through high Asabia and then it collapsed because of low Asabia and then that that low that dis that disintegration and that. Um, um, the decohering is even evident today in South Italy, where in South Italy today, where it used to be, you know, one of the high, one of the regions of the highest 
sense of unification. The South Italy is now one of the most socially atomized places, like in Europe at least, and probably in the world, just because it's so low, where everything is at the individual or even family level, and even within even within families, people distrust each other. So there are no large-scale projects that happen in, in South Italy just because um, the society for so long has been so fragmented and, and disconnected. So when I look at the um, kind of what's going on today, I'd I'd say probably. So that, that's where I that's why I agree with what you're saying, at least in the in the sense of, well, that might add a a hope, but maybe also a, um, a f fear is that with with Asabia so low because Western civilization, Western countries are all at the they're approaching their crisis point or past it you know that we're in the crisis period of our of our own cycle our own secular cycle which is when asabi is the lowest and when things disintegrate when people people uh, when there's um like the, the conditions that lead to civil war so there's polarization not just polarization within the masses but polarization between the masses and the elites polarization within the elites um so intra-elite infighting you put all these things together well some some leaders might be under the delusion that they that none of that matters that they will be able to that, that we will be able to succeed even if we don't have that foundation which is that that kind of spiritual unity that would that would allow um allow us to 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 fight and and to win and just one other thing on that subject is one of the things turchin brings up about i think i think the examples he brought up he definitely brought up the romans and they brought up one or two others, and I think they might have been the early Russian Empire and the British Empire, I think. But the, the thing he, he, he said about them and fighting was that they weren't necessarily the greatest armies at the time, and they lost a lot of battles. But the thing about the, thing about the, the imperial mindset is that they'd lose, but they'd keep, um, keep fighting. They'd keep going back, so they might lose a battle. But then they'd, and then, well, the way that he put it, they'd fight until they won. And... They were they were able to do that despite sometimes having lesser forces, um, you know, poorer conditions. But they had um, they were able to to have that that unity uh, among their fighting uh, forces to to keep going until they managed to to win. So I, I just wanted to bring that up as a uh, to tie in a couple of those concepts. But John, what did you have to say? Yeah, so I don't disagree um, with any of that. But just to play devil's advocate, if you look at World War I, um, the Russians did not have a whole lot of Asapia. The Ottoman Empire, the sick man of Europe, was certainly not high in Asapia. Uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire was similarly incredibly fragile. And, of course, the war resulted in the dismemberment of the Ottoman Empire, the dismemberment of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and the collapse of the uh, Tsarist regime in Russia and the onset of the Russian Revolution. Um, the point being that I, I definitely agree that the U.S., uh, in particular the West more broadly, has never been more fragmented internally than the social tensions are immensely high. There's no sense of common common purpose. Um, and yet we all have 
all of our countries have uh, an elite which has an absolute lock on institutional power who are either utterly out of touch and up their own bungholes, uh, drink your own Kool-Aid, whatever metaphor you want to use, or just don't care because they have to lock on institutional power. They don't need to care about whether or not their uh, society um, is behind them in this kind of struggle. And historically, that's a particularly dangerous situation because that's exactly the kind of elite which goes and does um, foolish things. And if you look at what's happened in the context of the Ukrainian conflict over the last year, I think we got already a couple of examples of really um, ill-considered tactical escalations which uh, achieved short-term tactical victories, but um, were strategically ruinous in my opinion. So. You know, right, right off the bat, you've got the weaponization of the U.S. dollar um, in terms of the Russian sanctions, which don't really seem to have hurt Russia at all, because, of course, the Russian economy is uh, um, massively undervalued. When you look at it from a purely monetary standpoint, um, the real economy is quite large. They have they make they really they have things that everyone wants, oil in particular. Uh, so. The West sanctioning them, all that that was the Russians just went and sold it to China and India instead, and they're fine. Um, and then there's the Nord Stream pipeline, which is potentially the greatest act of interstate uh, ecological terrorism and industrial terrorism which has ever been carried out. Um, and certainly was very effective in making sure that Europe could not, did not have the uh, temptation to make nice with Russia, but I think from a long-term diplomatic standpoint was rather ill-considered because it really pissed a lot of people off. Um, so I, I mentioned those incidents uh, to sort of highlight the fact that the current Western elite, I, I don't think they are very wise. I think they are very clever but not very wise. And that I think is maybe really worrying because that implies that even given the complete lack of acidia, the underlying economic fragility of Western countries that don't make anything anymore um, and have to import so much, uh, even, even given all of these factors, which in my, my World War III article like a year ago, I, I went through all those in detail. Um, I think they might still push for it. That's, I think, something that can't quite be ruled out. So, um, yeah. So I'd say that fits within the paradigm, you know, exactly. So, like, that's what you would expect. You'd expect them to do things that lead to short-term uh, gains, you know, because they, they got multi-domain operations and they're just not considering the spiritual domain. So like the pipeline is a perfect example. You know, that that might lead to some short-term positive battlefield effects, but it's obviously spiritually, you know, reprehensible. Um, so long-term, it's going to have those negative diplomatic outcomes and you, you put them all together. But analyzing it like one thing at a time is... Uh, like that's 
that's how you fall into these traps. And so again, I, I agree that they might see kicking off a large scale conflict as producing some sort of short-term gain and not see the long-term consequences because they're not analyzing it from the spiritual domain. But that also means that it wouldn't, if anything does kick off, it'll end very quickly because there's not, you know, the engagement in the spiritual domain isn't there to sustain it. Uh, Daniel, you had your hand up. It's just, uh, well, I mean, it's kind of the open question that, you know, kick out there and we're kind of touching on it which is you know is this uh in confidence or malice uh you know an example from a non-military uh you know business is uh i don't know if you guys remember in the 90s well those of you who are americans on this chat uh walmart it was like you know becoming the number one retailer in the country and uh so kmart was kind of the leg one of these legacy stores that had you know, huge presence nationwide, but they, um, you know, they're kind of coasting on their former glory, right? Walmart's this new company. So Kmart at some point, they recognize Walmart's a threat and they just, their executives are like, all right, we're just going to have a price war with Walmart. So they slash their prices and try to, you know, basically imitate Walmart, but they had none of the logistics set up that Walmart had established. They had none of the business practices. So it was like, Kmart just wound up hemorrhaging money. Walmart say, like, all right, we'll have a price war with you. Lowered their prices. They were made profitable and it just pushed Kmart further over the edge. And it seems like, yeah, kind of what we're doing, you know, with those, uh, conflict with Russia in Ukraine. Uh, and then we've got China looming over the horizon. You know, it, it seems like it's consistent with the elites being like the Kmart executives in the nineties, like so far out of touch that they just they in their mind they're still number one we still got all this strength and, and resources and you know so of course we can you know have a proxy war with russia just like it's you know 1979 and the soviets are in afghanistan and you know we have the the built up accumulated resources and standing in order to take them on you know in that way you know and of course in the meantime uh i guess uh nicola soldos you know, done uh, or, or talked about on his stack, you know, with this hubris that the leaders have, it's like rather than trying to separate China and Russia, it's like they're just taking them both on at the same time. Uh, you know, it, so I guess anyway, we'll discuss more of the specifics of that later, but just do you think that it's hubris that they that they really are just so deluded that they think nothing's changed you know the the u.s is basically it's always been as it's as strong as it's always been that we still have the logistics in place the resources in place the you know the the strength the military might all that to just impose our will without any repercussion or do you think they're you know malicious and it's almost like an, an, an act of planned sabotage. And going back to the retail example, uh, you know, this Kmart wound up being bought out by this billionaire who also bought Sears. And what he did with Sears in the 2000s was just basically everything that could be sold or mortgaged or spun off. He just ran it like a hedge fund. And, you know, everything was mortgaged or sold for short-term profits nothing was reinvested in the stores or the you know distribution or any of that and so it's like Sears just over time they just kept losing position until they get to a point where 
there's nothing left. There's no possible way they can ever come back. They got debt, you know, their debt to asset ratio is obscene, you know, it's, and so in that case, I think the, the hedge fund guy who bought Sears knew what he was doing. It wasn't, uh, he maybe made up his mind that it's not going to ever be profitable. So let's just, you know, get as much short-term value as we can out of it and then spin the corpse off to, to die, you know? So you look at the way our elites are, that's also seems plausible too. And I'm not sure how to evaluate between the two, if it really matters, you know, at the end of the day, if it's going to lead to the same place, but what you guys think, is it incompetence, malice, both? How competent are these people? Well, I guess I go next. Um, so, uh, to answer your question, I don't know, but, uh, I tend uh, towards, uh, hubris and stupidity basically, uh, because, uh, I, I, you know, when I, when I think about like the U S and, and the U S politics, um, uh, then, uh, it's pretty clear that, uh, they could pretty much do whatever they wanted, right. For, for a very long time. And they just, they didn't even have to do anything, right. They just, their word was, was the law, you know, on, on the world stage kind of thing. Um, and, uh, there, there was just this enormous, uh, economical power and military power that nobody, you know, could challenge or dare to challenge. And I think if you're just used to that and all the generations who actually, you know, fought wars and, and built the whole thing, they all died out. Right. And then you have like, I don't know, at least one, if not two generations who are just used, you know, are basically like spoiled brats, right. Um, basically can uh, think and speak reality into existence, right? Whatever they publish on the New York Times, that's their reality, right? So, um, and I think they just uh, thought they could just do that, right? I, I mean, if they say, all right, Russia, you did something bad there. So um, we threaten you with sanctions and then you will just go away, right? I mean, I, th I think that's, it's, it's, that's my sense anyway, that the Western elites are just, pretty lost in their in their um narcissistic psychopathic fantasy world at this point um but i wanted to say something about uh, cohesion as well because i found this discussion pretty interesting um and uh, i to be honest i can i find it hard to see how how in the west as it stands now there's there's any like spiritual uh cohesion to speak of that could like i don't know turn the tide in in favor of the west uh i, I just don't i mean i i i'm pretty sure that we will rather see like that spiritual cohesion form as a kind of revolution than you know as a as a coming together as it is now uh to to fight or to to create that that momentum so i i don't really see that and if we think back at uh, at World War One, for example, I mean it's just uh, if you read the book like um, which I can highly recommend, uh, Sebastian Hafner's uh, "Defying Hitler," uh, which is actually a misnomer, uh, mistranslation in English. Uh, it's basically an autobiography, and he speaks in detail, you know, how how all this unfolded during uh, World War One and and the the mood in the population and all that and. Um, and it's just unimaginable that, that like the, the amount of, uh, cohesion at that time, I mean, in part it was surely created by propaganda. Um, 
but uh, there was like a just way more co cohesive society to begin with and they could actually pull off that kind of propaganda that really really brought people on the same page like in on a visceral like level it's just you know incredible um and i'm sure it was similar in england and uh and other uh, uh parties to the war uh and uh, i'm not sure if if i look now at the situation even with their propaganda right which is still strong i mean do people re i mean are there really people who like uh you know i mean i guess there are some but but like who are like ready to die for ukraine and uh see that as the grand you know like uh the grand fight of good against evil um kind of thing where we all have to engage in and it's it, it, i find the the idea quite bizarre and i just don't see it and and on the other hand if i mean i'm not i'm no expert in like what's going on in russia and china but it almost seems like um there just the opposition to the west is creating like this a lot of this kind of cohesion um and this spiritual preparedness grand as, as you call it i think or this uh, this momentum where it's like it's like an epic battle of good against evil you know for them is they <laughs> see the the west as like this bully um you know inciting wars and blowing up pipelines and just causing misery everywhere and and then their whole woke nonsense you know i mean they see it exactly for what it is right so it it also has this uh, literally like a christian or spiritual component so yeah i just that's just my uh quick take on that so i'm i don't really see see it uh going anywhere at this point in the west and as for the elites um maybe there are some like I mean, there are always people who are smart who are trying to profit from these kinds of situations and might even, you know, like play with fire and and want to bring down some of that stuff to to make a buck, right? Or just uh, don't care or whatever. But uh, a lot of it is just, uh, in my reading, stupidity and hubris. So, Mark, I think you you're next. Sorry, how you doing? Um... Yeah, thanks for all that. I think the first thing is that I agree with all of the framing of this as being a matter of, as Harrison says, asabia or some sort of spiritual unity or the lack of it. And I also kind of agree that, that with, with Grant that that is probably a big reason that this isn't going to spill over into a World War Three that's um, you know, something like a traditional sequel to World War II, you know, like like a global turf war of allied states. It could. And if it did, I think it, you know, obviously would probably, it would split along the lines of something like the remnants of the American empire versus uh, something like the Briggs block or some similar arrangement. I, if, it, if it started to get hot, you know, I think, again, you would see other regional powers like Iran, you know, Turkey breaking one way or the other. Um, but I, th I think that that's unlikely. Um, and it, I think though a different sort of world war is more likely. And, and I, to, to frame that, I wanted to, um, investigate a claim that John made a few days back. Uh, I think it was something to the degree of iron rules gold, uh, 
And I think it's it's a little bit more complicated than that, but I kind of agree with it in principle. You know, the idea is something like, uh, I guess it, it's something like uh, if you have a bunch of gold and I have a sword, pretty soon I'm going to have a sword and a bunch of gold. Um, and I think though, if we frame it like that, you know, if we frame it like that, we're, we're saying, in other words, what's going on in Ukraine right now, right? Well, we have a bunch of local gangsters and we have a bunch of private equity firms that are gobbling up assets on the cheap. Um, that's the story. That's one story of what's going on there. But you could just say, well, that's just a normal war profiteering. That's just vultures. And it's not really gold ruling iron. It's just, you know, gold being collected, you know, in the aftermath of iron. But I think that if we look at it that way, the next logical question becomes, what rules iron? Uh, and I think, you know, the most obvious answer to that is, well, the blacksmith rules iron. And by blacksmith, I mean something like the traditional sword and shield style weapons design and the industrial manufacturing base that supports it. Um, in its current form, this would cover everything from air superiority uh, to blue water navies, long range artillery, mechanized infantry, uh, down to boots on the ground. And these are all weapons that are developed essentially on the same evolutionary curve as uh, the crossbow. The, the core design ethic is something like weapons that project more force more accurately and more efficiently over longer distances. And, and, it, and I think that that is the core of like one type of blacksmith ruling iron. Uh, and the secondary rule there would be something like minimizing the destruction of useful assets. That would be infrastructure, energy resources, um, arable farmland, and so forth. Uh, you know, in other words, you don't want to salt the earth if you don't have to. Um, and that's why I think that Ukraine will ultimately sort itself out and it'll be divvied up. The spoils of war will be divvied up in the usual way. Uh, but there's a diff there's a different, I think there's another candidate in the mix instead of the blacksmith. I think there might be stretches in history when it's logical to say that magic rules iron. And I think that we might be entering into one of those eras very soon if we're not already in it you know this would be not just 5gw warfare this would be just psyops this would be something like an extreme form of asymmetric warfare based on experimental technologies that are totally unavailable to your enemies F for example i think the last time that magic ruled iron was the invention and use of the uh, the the atomic bomb uh, and there's some problems with that, though, because magic, if magic rules iron, the first problem is, is that it doesn't usually last for very long. Um, you know, the second somebody else gets his hands on his own doomsday device, there's no such thing as a doomsday device anymore. I, I think that's basically the story of the nuclear arms race. Once a country like India has nukes, you know, nukes stop existing for all practical purposes. Even arguably before that, like... You know, when the Soviets first mounted them on ICBMs, it's like, it's like now you have a dragon that blows up the wizard's own castle when you summon it, so you never summon it. 
Um, but that doesn't mean that magic stops developing in the background because it doesn't, you know, and that leads us to the other huge problem is that most magicians are totally batshit insane. You know, it's, it's the, that's the kind of the story of the arms race towards the end when we kept churning out more nukes beyond any realistic advantage they could give us. Uh, but there, I think there's more to it than just like an economic insanity. Uh, I think that, and so when I look at the last couple of decades of every American conflict around the world, right? I step back and I try to understand this picture because it's a weird picture. It's a bunch of boneheaded moves, like one after the other after the other. And as as Luke was saying, I think a lot of that could be attributed to hubris. But here's here's a theory, and it's just a theory. I don't know how much credence anyone should give it. But what if we step back and we looked at Iraq and Afghanistan, um, and very recently Ukraine? Like we so we all saw the video of the Patriot system getting owned, right? We all saw that, um, and it's almost unbelievable. It's just sort of like if this is. You know, we, we have a, a White House that's that's executing these drawdown authorities in order to just basically empty our stockpiles of conventional weapons, right? And we have, in Afghanistan, we have this situation where we just kind of left everything behind. You know, it's just like, yeah, have fun with it, Taliban. You know, all of this, all of this looks like it's just, it's like we're saying hubris and also lack of spiritual unity, lack of the will to fight, a brain drain of, comp of competence from the upper echelons on downward. I think all of that plays into it. But I think there also might be some kind of an intramural warfare in the background going on between the blacksmith approach, right? Traditional, conventional, meat grinding, ranged weaponry. And behind the scenes, you know, with, you know, um, some of the weirder projects of DARPA, let's say. Like, uh, and I think it, it maps all the way down to like, you know, all of the failures. Like we think about something like the F-35 stealth fighter, which was just this epic flaw that was 20 years in the making, right? You poured so much money, so much brain power into this, and it, it just, it's unworkable. Or, or, or the idea that our carrier groups can't stop hypersonic missiles, which would make them totally irrelevant if China and, and Russia have them, and it's looking like they do. You know, that's a whole, that's a whole lot of gold down the shitter right and then you add, you know, these, I mean, it's like, uh, so maybe there's a reason behind all this stupidity. And if so, I think the reason might be that whether it's the DOD, the Pentagon, the deep state as a whole, I think they might be making a transition, a, a big transition to unconventional warfare. That, that they're essentially being nudged or even forced into handing the reins over to the magicians at DARPA that they've been lobbying for more gold and control ever since the end of the Cold War and, and before, frankly. Um, and I think that's when we run afoul of the whole all wizards are insane rule. If you try to keep tabs on these projects like I do, I'm guessing you know what I mean. You know, I'm not just talking about automated weapons platforms or bio-warfare agents. You know, I'm talking super soldiers with programmable brains. Talking, you know, cyborg insects fit, fitted out with microscopic surveillance gear. Shit like optogenetics, like where they, they use magnetized proteins to remotely stimulate nerves and control muscle movements with pulses of laser light. This is the type of stuff 
This is this is the stuff that he admits to publicly. They brag about this stuff in white papers and in industry rags. I mean, who knows what they're cooking up in the back? You know, these these dudes are crazier than a snake's elbow. And and I think the brass is now looking at, you know, world war is a war they can't possibly win with conventional weapons. And and I think they're right about that. I mean, they couldn't even win against a bunch of goat herders in Afghanistan. And unless it was done on purpose, they couldn't even retreat from them properly. What are we looking at here? You know. And if that's the case, they're gonna they're planning to open up this Pandora's box of DARPA monsters. Then if we do have a world war, I think it's gonna be one hell of a scary rot. And you might actually inadvertently get that spiritual unity as a result of it. Strangely enough, they might be building you know, it's like it's like uh, you know, what are we called? What does the Taliban call us? What does Iran call us? The Great Satan. We're beginning to look a lot more like the Great Satan, frankly. And like, if even a tenth of what these people play at in the shadows comes out into the light to play, I think very quickly you might see maybe even a transnational kind of spiritual unity developing, and maybe that's the hidden war that's going on. It's something like the transhumanists and and the elite global homo versus humanity. And all of this other business, the proxy wars and like the, you know, the the color revolutions and all that. Like that, that's more sort of cover fire for what I what's actually going on. I don't know. Does anybody have any thoughts about any of that nonsense? Yeah. Yeah. I got some thoughts on that. Um so, like, I think the 20th century really primed us to expect world wars or wars in general to be um, really uh, technologically disruptive. So, you know, World War I, uh, you had all of these technologies like um, flight and machine guns that completely changed the face of conventional warfare uh, and they caught all of the generals of Europe completely with their pants down and turned the whole thing into a meat grinder until tactics caught up with it. Uh, and similarly, World War II, mechanized warfare, again, air power. Um, you had a, a total change in doctrine. And, and what was... In both cases, the impact of technological advances was apparent pretty much at the beginning of the war. What I found sort of interesting, I mean, assuming that the Ukrainian conflict is kind of the, the first front of World War II, is that the, the technological differences with previous wars don't actually seem that remarkable. If anything, they, they sort of reverted back to World War I style trench warfare. Now, both sides are equipped with advanced uh, technology. Uh, you know, they both have uh, drones, for example. Um, the Russians have hypersonic missiles. So, okay, so the Russians can penetrate American, uh, or sorry, Ukrainian, but you know what I mean, uh, NATO uh, missile defenses um, more effectively. So that's a bit of an edge. Uh, drones seem to be making a lot less of a difference than I would have expected. And that seems to come down to electronic warfare, kind of largely nullifying the tactical advantages of them um because of course you know if you have a drone 
and the other top the other side has good EW capabilities, then either they can jam your ability to control your drone, making it a lot less useful, or they can triangulate your position as you're communicating with it, which makes the use of the drone itself intrinsically hazardous because uh, you need a, a continuous um, signal in order to control it. Uh, so it, it, it's been surprising to me how advanced it isn't so far. And maybe that just means that uh, both sides are keeping their, their most advanced weapons um, back. But I also kind of wonder to what degree a lot of it could be hayfig. Um, you know, we've had outside of information technology, really in the world of atoms, which is pretty relevant to warfare, we've had kind of a stagnation in technology for the last uh, couple of generations. Um, our, our basic weapon systems have not changed that much from, you know, what we were using with Vietnam. Um, and our consumer, everyday, everyday consumer technologies, uh, similarly, like, you know, they're not really that different from what we would have had back in the 1970s or even the 1960s. Uh, so that's one factor. And then another thing um, that I think is worth pointing out is that, yeah, I mean, a magician can definitely have an impact, as Mark was saying, but they won't necessarily win you the war. So again, if you look back at World War II, and I hate sort of always coming back to World War II, everyone always does that. Um, but, you know, there's no question, at least in my mind, that the country that had the most advanced military research uh, was German by far. Okay, they didn't get the nuke first, but they were pretty far along with that. They had rockets, jet engines, um, all sorts of really strange stuff that they were experimenting with uh, on things like magnetic levitation and uh, you know, giant um, giant cannons and just crazy stuff. And yet, despite you know, for instance, having the uh, uh, the first jet fighter aircraft. Um, that outflew anything the Allies could put in the air. They lost the war. Why? Because they couldn't put, they couldn't make enough of it fast enough. They had, or, or you know, they had like the the, the first cruise missile, the V one, the first, uh, effectively almost an ICBM, the V two, and yet that didn't win the war either. Because you know, conventional explosives on a V two, okay, it was a bit of an annoyance when it something comes screaming down from the sky, but at the you know, it it wasn't a game changer. Um, not with a nuke on yet. So, okay, you know, there's no question, I think, that America has uh, probably the most advanced weapons research uh, culture on the planet. I mean, I don't know exactly what the Chinese and the Russians have, but I mean, it seems to me that the Chinese are constantly playing catch-up. Um, but looking at American research culture, at least in the civilian world, you know, you've got a huge number of programs that are mostly large bureaucracies that exist as effectively jobs programs that don't actually come out with much in the way of disruptive technology. It's always, everything is always five years away, 10 years away. You know, oh, we're going to have fusion soon. Yeah, they've been saying that since like 1970, you know. Um, so on paper, it looks like you've got all of this amazing magical technology that you're going to pull out and then 
where actually is it, right? And, you know, the stuff that does work, okay. I know that they're testing uh, beam weapons, like lasers, for instance, for shooting down missiles, really cool. Okay, why aren't they shooting down those Russian hypersonic missiles with those? Well, that's because they have like one or two. Like they haven't, they're not mass manufacturing these things because the industrial base is not there in order to make these things at scale. Um, so then just sort of some thoughts on that, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's not necessarily as straightforward as he who has the most advanced technology is going to win, win the war. Um, oh, and on the, on the iron rules rule thing, uh, yeah, I was being a bit cheeky there. You basically got it. It's, you know, if you have a sword, you can take someone's gold. That's history kind of shows that. Um, but I was also kind of making a bit of a dig at the, there's, you know, People say stuff like the pen is mightier than the sword, um, which I think is not always so true. Sometimes the sword really is mightier than the pen. Uh, and, you know, we also have this idea of this, we have this kind of like mercantile culture where, you know, money rules everything. And again, if you look at what happened with, between, uh, with, with Russia about uh, a year ago with the, with the sanctions, um, on paper, the U.S. has this huge economy and it should have been able to completely destroy the Russians with these sanctions. And then it turns out, well, no, because wealth on its own, uh, especially if it's not real wealth, it doesn't actually go as far as you think it will. Um, now I'm starting to ramble, so I'm going to, I'm going to, and I see a bunch of hands up, so I'm going to pass it on to... Uh, I actually forget whose hand is up first. I'll respond and I'll kick it back over to Mark because um, some of what I wanted to say was in relation to uh, what he was saying. So, I mean, I I am pretty confident, about as confident as I can be, you know, my 95% confidence interval and all my beliefs are, uh, you know, just probabilities with error bars because I have epistemic humility. Uh, the people uh, ruling us right now don't have that. They are philosophical and spiritual ignoramuses. Um, you know, they're a bunch of atheist, technocratic materialists. And so they they don't see or understand um, the situation that we're in and really the hopelessness of their cause. Like they think that you can rewrite reality with power, um, and you, you can do all this stuff in the short term. It just doesn't work in the long run. In the long run, they're going to fail because they're not engaging in the spiritual domain. And the interesting thing about that domain and engaging in it is if they did, then they would develop epistemic humility and they wouldn't be on the wrong side of the fight anymore. You know, it's just this beautiful self-correcting system. Where if you're going to be on the right side of history, you know, you have to engage in that domain and understand some of these basic things. And in order to be spiritually enlightened, that comes with some degree of humility. It's an antidote to the hubris that, uh, that drives this just, I mean, they're just, they're ignoramuses really. And it's really hard to wrap your head around that because they have so much power it's like how could they be so short-sighted and not see this but um i mean do, do any of you guys disagree with that i'll hand it back over to mark 
but I mean, do you, do you not just completely agree with that? I mean, I think a lot of your writing, you talk about this exact issue and how, when you have this hubris and you don't have these traditional, um, I won't even say traditional, but just religious beliefs and this understanding of things that are transcendent. Um, if you don't have that, then something comes in to fill the gap. And that is, you know, you can call it demonic, you can call it whatever you want, but that's what takes over and it seals their fate and their commitment to atrocity. Um, and so that's, that's why they're going to lose. And that's why it's not like, can you think of world war three in terms of, you know, nations and cause it's like, who's, who's in charge. It, it, it all comes like the battle lines are just clearly to me, they're, they're spiritual at this point. People that have that yeah, actually, actually, yeah. versus not. Sorry, sorry to jump in there, but I, I, I meant to mention that because Mark was saying this and I think, and I wanted to agree with this, that, you know, looking at it in terms of like, you know, Russia and China versus the West, um, I think is probably an error. Like I think to a large degree, this is more like the Western global elite versus humanity, uh, with, you know, the home population being every bit as much, um, the enemy as, uh, as truculent foreigners, um, as quick interjection there, Mark. Hey, sorry. Uh, yeah. Um, totally agree with Grant. Um, no, I have no objection to framing it that way. That is the frame. I would almost argue that's always been the frame. Um, even though it's, it becomes more apparent at times and less apparent at times. Um, we're always kind of in that, that conflict. Um, and yes, the bad guys are always going to be full of hubris there. And because of that, they're going to be blinded by it. And, and just to speak to John's, um, previous comment, I, I don't believe that they will win. I think that they're engineering the seeds of their own destruction, um, as they will always do. You know, part of being, I think, core to being evil in a lot of ways, not just to doing evil, but saying we could draw some line or some threshold that you can cross where we could just say, well, these people aren't just are evil. It's not what they're doing. It's what they, it, it's, it's fundamental to their being. It's fundamental to the way they perceive reality, to the way that they perceive humanity. Um, and once you cross that threshold, there's a lot of problems. You know, forget the DARPA monsters. I'm not afraid of them. I do. I think that they will be self-defeating. Actually, I think that they'll be easily defeated, uh, if not technologically, um, then through other means. But even technologically, I think that, you know, um, just putting my scientific mind to work on some of these problems, I'm like, eh, it's not such a big deal. You know, it's like it's a big, scary monster that, you know, it's it's got a fatal weakness. It's allergic to garlic or something. Um, so no, I'm not, I'm not, I wasn't, I didn't mean to imply that like somehow magic wins wars. Um, uh, magic can sometimes end certain battles or certain, um, or, or, or shift the battlefields in some way. Um, but no, I think ultimately we are looking at a situation where the hubris is super intense these people are are as incompetent, at least the ones we see, 
I think, I do believe are every bit as incompetent as they appear to be. Um, that doesn't mean that like you don't you, you don't have people behind the scenes that are looking to take advantage of this boobery, which I think there always are. Um, and whether those are financial interests, again, private equity firms, we all know what's happening. We all know what happens um, uh, when uh, Ukraine becomes a battlefield. It's one of the, it's, you know, it's, it's the breadbasket of the world in some ways. Um, that just on agribusiness alone, you know, you could look at it and say, oh, everybody's like waiting to divvy this up. They all want to, they all want a slice of that pie. Um, and then we could also look at it in terms of like, just to say about like, well, who's, who's really the good guys here? You know, it's like, when we look at the history of NATO since the end of the Cold, the Cold War, um, since the collapse of the Soviet Union, we could very easily look at NATO and say, hey, what are you guys up to? I have questions, you know, I have serious questions about like what it is that you think that you're doing when you're radically expanding it and saying like, well, we're the world police now. Well, who, who put a badge on you for that? I don't recall that being your mission. So like as these questions come up, and I think that they will continue to in the minds of many people, not just, you know, a couple of radical extremists on the right or something like that. But like rather in the minds of basically everyone who's going to feel the effects of this, but they're going to feel the effects of de-dollarization, right? They're going to feel the effects of the end of the petrodollar. They're going to feel the effects of um, centralized um, uh, digital banking. They'll, they'll feel these things. And, and I think that I'm, I'm a bit optimistic about the near future because of that, because I do know that as hard as e as much as spiritual unity wanes, you know, in the, in the wake of modernity or in the, in, in the, you know, sort of the, the backgrounding of religion or, um, or the, you know, the death of sort of even like civics, uh, like as it wanes, it could quickly gain force again. It is one of the, cause it is, it's, it's a property without a mass. Essentially it's something that can be summoned at will. And it, all it would take was one great, typhoon of it to turn this all around. And and so that, I mean, it's not that I'm betting that way, but I'm just saying, I'm putting that out there as a possibility that like, this is the kind of war that could turn on a die. And it's the kind of enemy that by nature self-destructs because it's treacherous and it's, it's, it's people betray each other or they'll turn each other on, turn each other in on a dime, you know, that sort of thing. So yeah, I, I just want to turn it over now. Who had their hand up first? I see several. Luke, I think that was me. Yeah. So just to to keep on 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 the th same theme, Mark, um, I'm optimistic as well. I think the uh, the dynamics are just uh, so uh, unpredictable, and everything can change so fast. Uh, we don't we don't usually see see it right. Um, we kind of have still this gradualist uh, dogma in mind that everything just you know goes slowly and uh, one step at a time. But if things can change dramatically, and I wanted. To dwell a little bit on this uh, question of hubris as well, um, that both you and and Grand uh, talked about, and I think that's that's super important because you know I mean I I grown up uh, idealizing a lot of these people in power, right? We I mean I don't know like the Hillary Clintons of of this world and and all these um, you know this power elite that went to Ivy League schools and. Uh, Sitting in their fancy offices uh, and having so much power and 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 project this 
image of like total being totally in command and, and all that is actually quite shocking uh when you when you realize it's it's not just that they're like uh evil you know i mean that's part of it but they are also really really stupid um and they don't have this uh yeah, ignoramus. Uh, I think it's a, it's a really fitting word, and uh, and it's it's not necessarily the kind of like stupidity that you know they can't read and write and and that sort of thing. Although you know, you never know these days. Um, but uh, it's it's like this uh, kind of spiritual stupidity, right? It's just, um, and and I know some religious people kind of try to frame it that way, like. If someone is in in office, let's say, and either he he accepts the Lord Savior or he doesn't, and that you know determines whether he's good guy or not. I mean, but it's obviously not that simple, right? The the spiritual question is it's a bit more subtle, and and I think you you may say uh, it's just about like having having a good grasp of of a higher ideal and uh, and the humility that that goes along with it, right? And and it's hard to see sometimes because it can be a subtle thing. But uh, I think these days, and that's the actually the the good thing about these crazy times, that it it becomes just more and more obvious, right? We we have so many examples uh, from both sides. I, I mean, I just recently watched a, a little bit of RFK Jr.'s um, talk with uh, Russell Brand, although um, it's on Rumble and Rumble is censored here, uh, so. It's it's a bit problematic, but um, uh, speaking of crazy times, uh, but uh, yeah, but but there were still a few snippets and 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 RFK. I mean, um, he basically said the same thing, right? It's uh, that he has this kind of spiritual outlook, even though he's not like an openly like over religious guy, but he has said explicitly that he has this uh, spiritual outlook that keeps him grounded and that keeps him fighting, basically, right? It's this. Uh, this sense of like, no matter what they do to him, you know, that it's just something higher, and it doesn't have anything to do with, uh, you know, getting rich and powerful. Um, or I mean, some of that might play into it as well. But you know, I mean, say about him what what you will, but I think he's sincere in in that sense, right? And and uh, and then there's the the contrast to like these people who just collapse into into their ego basically and that can only lead to um to like real a complete ignorance of you know like the the, the what, what actually drives people you know like their reading of of situation the, the reading of of their population of of everything that's going on and um it's it's just a downward spiral once you like just in that frame of mind, um, in in that uh, kind of uh, psychological collapse, right into 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 the self, it's it's just incredible to watch, really, um, and it, it it ultimately, I think, it, it leads to literal like stupidity and a detachment from from reality that is so severe um, that can be hidden for quite a while, but these days it just. It's just so blatant, right? It's just so incredible to to watch this whole spectacle, and uh, and it's really fascinating. I think that it has become uh, so obvious, let's say, and uh, yeah. So uh, I think the situation can change very dramatically, and it's in part because of this this incredible disconnect between 
many in the in the in the so-called elite and and what's what's really going on so here's on a on a hopeful note i think uh daniel we were next in line right mm-hmm. yeah hey um uh, yeah no I, you're talking about uh you know these people I forget what you said about how stupid they are early on in your uh remark you know it reminded me of the Enron book and movie are uh, the smartest guys in the room, you know, tongue in cheek title, but just that they, you know, had these MBAs, highly credentialed, supposedly had all these great theories about how you can basically pull profits out of a hat, like a rabbit out of a magician's hat, you know, with creative enough accounting. And you know, it turned out contradicts some basic fundamental reality. It didn't work, blew up. And then it seems to be. Kind of the case we're in now with, uh, yeah, if you, if you're familiar with, uh, whether in philosophy or sociology or whatever, or economics, you know, people will have with great credentials, they'll put forward these profound sounding theories that seem to have explanation for everything. If you assume their priors, you know, but then they wind up reaching these absurd conclusions that. If you, somebody who's just a, a kid who's, you know, not familiar with the, the theories involved could look at it and say, oh, it's bullshit, you know, it's, but yeah, once you're brainwashed almost within this set of theories and everybody around you is spouting them too, as if they're meaningful, you know, as the whole emperor has no clothes phenomenon. And, uh, yeah, I mean, just looking at, you know, while China's and Russia are worried about building better, deadlier weapons and, you know, uh, getting advantages the old fashioned way through espionage and all that. It's like, we're worried about pronouns and, you know, drag queen story hour and all that sort of stuff. Like, I, I mean, the, they're using drag queens in Navy recruiting ads and they're having, you know, uh, what, uh, it's just, I don't know if it's, uh, like some, uh, you know, basically on ship having people from the rainbow coalition reading poetry about their sexuality to the entire ship, you know, it's it was stuff like this that, you know, if they're contradicting basic biology, you know, something as, as fundamental as that, you know, that there's the uh, humans are a sexually dimorphic species and you can't just put on a dress and wear lipstick and claim, all right, I'm magically the same as a biological woman now. You know, if if they're that disconnected from reality on something that's so basic and fundamental to human nature, then surely in their, you know, behind closed doors, top secret meetings where they're discuss- hashing out their strategies about how this is going to work and they're trying to play whatever 5D chess or however many dimensions it is they think they're playing chess in, you know, that disconnect is going to be there in that setting as well. And so I'm sure they have this great plan laid out and I'm sure it's totally, you know, the first contact with reality is just going to get blown to pieces. Uh, yeah. So that I guess their incompetence is, you know, a hopeful thing for us. And, uh, and then on that note, I would say, I think it's, a World War Three, as much as it would suck for everybody, is maybe the best of 
the possible bad outcomes. And what I mean by that is if, you know, Nicolo Soldo's Turbo Americana, the or whatever, the the elites being united and just raping and pillaging the people of the world, if they're that united and that dead set on what they want, which they've announced, you know, the whole Agenda 2030 thing, we're supposed to be living in pods, surveilled endlessly, you know, the useless eaters will be, you know, just playing video games and drugged up, you know, there'll be the side. I mean, all the things that they want to happen, like that's the future we have to look forward to if the elites are not toppled either by intra-elite competition, which maybe is starting to happen. I don't know. It's hard to to tell. Or Black Swan events, which given how much, you know, the, the ruling class has hollowed out the society over which they're ruling, destroyed Asabia, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that, uh, you know, that is it with John's article, you know, the, the nutrition, the lifestyle, everything is unhealthy, you know, so you got this sick, disease, divided, emo, you know, people on a cocktail of prescription medications for psychiatric disorders, you know, all this sort of stuff going on. And, uh, you know, the, the, the first time there's a big black swan event that they haven't planned for, you know, in their, you know, labs in Wuhan or Ukraine or wherever it is, they come up with this shit. If the first time a black swan event happens that they can't control, I don't think they have, there's no resilience in the system anymore, you know? So it's like, that could be, it's one of those things. It's like, we're in a fight for our lives and they have the chokehold locked in, you know, on the regular people. And if there's not chaos introduced somehow, they're going to, get the choke. They're going to put us out and it's done. We're living in pods, all that sort of stuff, you know, but if chaos is introduced and this is one of these are with them being so full of hubris and stupidity, it's that they think they're better able to manage the chaos. Like there is this controlled demolition of the world. Maybe I don't know what it is that they think they're doing, but it's like, they think they're going to be able to manage this chaos as things unravel, as they, you know, maneuver humanity towards this agenda 2030. Right. And to me, it's like they're they're the least poised to do that because of how disconnected they are from reality. So it's like indirectly or I don't know, ironically, it's it's actually a hopeful thing, even though it will surely suck and war is never good and nothing to just charge into. But the fact that these elites that we have are seem determined to do it and the fact that unless they're toppled, they're going to, you know, the, the future is a fate worse than death for us. Maybe this isn't so bad. Maybe there's something to be hopeful about, but anyway, sorry for rambling. Uh, passing on over to John. Yeah. I feel like there's a, some sort of cosmic principle at work in the sense that the universe is always sort of, you know, infinitely larger than you are. And any attempts to, control it to to completely conquer and dominate the world is pretty much doomed from the outset and you can get quite a lot quite 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 far along the way and have a lot of successes on on, uh such a venture but ultimately something will happen that will cause that control to falter and and fall apart and you know you look historically there have been 
previous uh, conquerors, previous empires that have tried to um, control the entire world. And they've all ultimately come down. Some of them very quickly, Napoleon or Alexander, others took a little bit longer, like Rome or Britain. Um, but inevitably, they all run up against something. So, you know, you, I'm glad you brought up like the, the World Economic Forum types, because you know, ultimately that's, I think, Davos man who's kind of uh, driving all of this. Um, yeah, they, they hold forth their Agenda 2030 podopoli as the sort of great vision for, you know, what we all get to live in if they win. No one likes that, so they've got a problem there. Um, in order to maintain control in their domestic populations, they have to do all sorts of things to keep them continuously weak, you know, biologically weak, uh, mentally weak, spiritually weak, divided, you know, all of these things that make them far less effective as warfighters. Um, but then they also need that domestic population in order to effectively subjugate the uh, foreign populations that are not quite so eager to go all in on the Agenda 2030. So, for instance, the Russians, the Chinese. Um, and then that connects back onto, okay, what are the objectives here, right? So, you know, forgetting for a moment about uh, the sort of sociological dimension and just looking at the sort of geopolitical dimension, you know, what are the victory conditions? So the victory conditions for the West are essentially total subjugation of uh, China, Russia, um, of the global South, total, the, nothing less than total world domination by the American empire will suffice in order for them to be able to do their agenda 2030 thing. But the victory conditions for Russia and China and India and, you know, all the rest of BRICS and so on are, are quite a bit simpler than that. It's basically, uh, don't get conquered. They're in a defensive posture fundamentally, um, which is a lot easier to organize, to, to, to generate Asadia from. Those people over there are coming over here to take our stuff from us and make us do things the way that they do them. Um, is really easy to get people ginned up to fight. And, you know, the, as far as I've been able to tell, the, uh, the appetite for um, the Ukraine conflict has not really slackened much in Russia over the last couple of years, despite it uh, sort of dragging out for a while. Um, whereas, you know, in the West, uh, you've got some fraction of the population who are like, yay, I want to eat the bugs, I want to have my carbon tracked and so on, but they're, they're actually a minority. Most people look at that with horror. They don't want that future. They hate their elites, you know. Um, if if it comes to an actual shooting war, I mean, there's already a uh, a recruiting shortfall um, in the U.S., but I think most Western countries are experiencing that because uh, no one wants to fight for this. Um, okay, so they're going to have to have a draft. Well, okay, now you you do that. Now you've got a bunch of convict or not convict uh, conscript. Uh, soldiers who are very deeply unenthusiastic about being there. Historically, that has not worked out well. Um, you're going to end up with a lot of sabotage, for instance, and that highly technologically sophisticated 
uh, military with that really long logistical train in order to make the tip of the spear uh, in order to keep it lethal um, has a lot of moving parts in it, which are all very easily monkey wrenched. Uh, so, I mean, they've the, the the point is they've really kind of got their uh, their work cut out for them. You know, like they're they're gradually losing control internally as people turn against them, and you know, externally. Russia and China certainly have no particular reason to uh, to play ball. Um, so I I don't see their um, their project succeeding. I think you know, ten years time, we come back and it's sort of like this bad dream of the past. You know, hopefully it could be that they manage to implement it to a large degree in the West and sort of hold on as this kind of crumble in this kind of crumbling uh, rump state. Um, enforcing the pronouns and the Green New Deal and everything on all the peasants back home while the rest of the world just kind of gets on with the future. But I don't think they're they're going to have the ability to enforce this globally. Um, which doesn't mean that we won't have a lot of conflict uh, because, you know, if you look at World War II, it was basically just a huge number of uh, small scale conflicts all kind of snowballing on on top of one another. So you had you know Germany and um and Japan kind of uh, as the most um active belligerents, but you know you zero in on the European theater and you had all sorts of score settling happening uh, with various groups in uh, the Balkan states, for instance, or. Uh, the Baltic states or you know, all over Eastern Europe, um, all sort of, all these little brush fire wars kind of pop, like opportunistically popping off. And I, I could very easily see something like that happening. Um, yeah, that's all I had to say. Uh, was Grant or Daniel? It was Grant. So I, I think there's something really interesting to focus in on that might be obvious to a lot of people, but you pointed it out. And I think it's a salient point that their victory conditions a lot harder, you know, trying to make a multipolar world is a heck of a lot easier than trying to make a unipolar world, uh, infringing upon people's self-determination, uh, takes a tremendous amount of resources. And sometimes it's, I mean, it's, it's possible to do that for good reasons and be on the side of good. I mean, the, the classic example to use here is the American civil war, where as soon as that war became about slavery, you know, the North had the moral authority because, you know, slavery is not consistent with American being and the spirit of America never was. And so before that's what it was about when it was just about self-determination, you know, the South had the edge, but as soon as it was about the, you know, the emancipation proclamation was signed, it was about slavery and any slavery. That was it. And so, but I think that that only exists at the level of a nation. So I don't think that there's any atrocity that is so beyond the pale that warrants one nation going and 
and going to war with another nation to stop what people are doing within their own borders. And the only reason I say that is because, like, look at the atrocities that we've tolerated over the last hundred or so years. Um, you have to tolerate it because you don't have the resources to stop them. And the only people that do are the people that are local. And honestly, you know, programs like foreign aid um, essentially creates a lottery or like this system where, hey, if you can, especially in contested areas like Somalia, where you could say, hey, if you can say that you have a government and you have a monopoly on force in this geographic area, then we'll, we'll give you a big pot of money continually that you can spend however you want. So, you know, I, I think that that asymmetry, like that's really the asymmetrical battle that's going on that anybody who's striving for hegemony ultimately can't win because you're trying to impose your will on these, you know, billions of people that don't want what you're selling. Like they don't want it. And there's just not the capacity to force that. And in the process of forcing it, it creates more opposition. You know, the more coercion you use, the more you demonstrate that you don't have the moral high ground. So I, you know, this, this all relates to that spiritual domain. I just like, they just don't see it. They just don't understand that they, this is a rule, like a fundamental rule of nature. And, um, if they did, I think that they would change tactics potentially, uh, but in the process of changing tactics, they'd no longer be the bad guys. Daniel. Yeah, no, that's exactly, uh, agree with you a thousand percent. As uh, just a couple of days. One, I don't know, I assume you guys are Philip K. Dick fans. The dude's like a prophet. And uh, there's one story, Ed, just to toss out as a recommendation. It, interesting to read in light of today's world and today's topic, Noel O, uh, N-U-L-L hyphen O, or about a group of psychopaths who try to hijack the world, you know, the 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 militaries of the you know dominant world powers in order to basically destroy humanity uh anyway kind of interesting in light of the world we seem to be living in today but uh the other thing so jesse kelly talks about this and i wonder if it's right you know it kind of goes back to the whole i'm sure they're evil are they competent and pretending to be incompetent or are they really you know incompetent i'm not totally sure uh I guess it doesn't really matter for this um, proposal, but he says that they're not destroying the military. They're creating a new one, basically one that will turn inward on its own citizens, you know, with the soft purges of, uh, you know, with the vaccine mandates and, you know, the ideology that's being promulgated from on high with the DOT, uh, you know, the type of recruitment ads that they have with drag queens and all that, you know, getting kind of removing the, the, good old boys that maybe would have enlisted, you know, for purposes of, you know, patriotism or, or whatever, 20 years ago, who would never, uh, flatly contradict the constitution, you know, do something uh, to their fellow citizens and replace them with people who are ideologues that probably would. Um, and I don't know if that's the case. I mean, it's, it's a consistent, that analysis seems to be consistent with what they're doing. Of course, I don't think they're competent. And so if 
down to backfire, especially given what we see going on in the world with uh, you know the uh, Cold War 2.0 with Russia, as China is definitely eyeing Taiwan, and I'm not sure what our policy officially is with Taiwan at this point. I mean, they've made promises of you know we'll defend them, but that's not realistic given you know how close China is to Taiwan and how easy it would be for them to project military strength there versus us you know especially if it's been brought up with our them having hypersonic missiles our aircraft carrier groups are not gonna be that relevant uh you know so anyway if they're you know purging the military of traditional patriots for lack of a better term uh the people that respect the constitution and take the oath seriously, uh, you know, replacing them with ideologues who are committed cultural Marxist, communist, whatever, uh, you know, I could see them doing that, but it's going to lead to the same place. If world war three kicks off, you know, you're, uh, uh, I got the thought, you know, they, we, we, with the 1984, seemed like a terrifying dystopian future, but they're coming up with something that's as worse instead of big brother, you know, this, uh, manly figure with the mustache looking at you, watching you. It's like some tranny with, you know, pink hair, you know, watching you and ready to send you off to the gulag. So, uh, anyway, the, do you think that they, that that's their aim with, with what they're doing with the military? Are they trying to create a new military that would turn on like for, for a war on America's own citizens. Uh, and if so, does that, uh, well, I mean, it seems like with the, the state of the world, if we get into world War three, that that would destroy that plant. And because such a military would not be able to fight a foreign foe. Uh, but I wonder is how serious is some of this stuff? Like, you know, you see the, uh, footage say of Zelensky with these photo ops you know it seemed or, or or Brandon having a meeting with Zelensky and they play the air raid sirens as he's walking out even though there's no air raid happening in Russia in fact has set it had been notified ahead of time that Brandon would be there so there's no threat that they're even gonna you know bomb the place uh, you know how much of this theater had been posturing and how much of this do you, do you think that they really are enemies at the end of the day to where they're, and maybe the Chinese are, I don't know. They seem to own a lot of our leaders. Uh, and I'm not even sure how to articulate the question that I'm raising, but I guess there's two of them. Do you think that they're creating a military with the purpose of using it against American citizens? And then two, do you think they're, if that's the case, how serious do you think they are about also simultaneously picking a fight with a four foe how much of that do you think could just be theater posturing you know whatever i'll i'll try and answer that and i'll kick it over mark so i mean i i i think they're selecting for compliance more than anything else so they, they're not like oh we're trying to purge these people but no they just they have a specific ideology and they want people to comply generally because that's how they operate it's like power is the most important thing and so they don't necessarily have any specific plans for the military in mind but 
as long as everybody in the military complies, regardless of, you know, the spiritual dimension, which they don't see as legitimate. Like, I just, I don't think they see it. So when people are like, that violates my religious beliefs, they're like, that's stupid. Like, there's no such thing as those. Um, meanwhile, they have their own religious beliefs that they view as, as secular about, uh, like an abstract, it's an abstract humanitarianism where like the best thing that we can do is like equal rights, egalitarianism. And that's, you know, making sure that, uh, trans individuals feel included, um, that say women feel included in combat arms. That's, that's all part of the ideology. So, I mean, I think that's, those are the overwhelming dynamics that they govern that as opposed to some deliberate, like, Hey, these people, we need to purge these specific people. Um, I, I just, I, I don't, I don't think there's that level of awareness, but there could be for some people. Um, but I mean, they, they essentially, they, they believe in public health, right? You know, like they, they believe it's this thing that improves readiness. Like they just, like, I mean, I've had a lot of conversations with people. Like, I, you I, think they're oh, true yeah. believers? Like, yeah. they, they actually I, drink the Kool-Aid and this is, yeah. they're not just, this isn't an act of smoke. They're, they're like, they're really, from the top yeah. down, really believe. And in our first, yeah, first sec death, you know, like sending weapons to Ukraine is good, you know, it's, yeah, that's good strategy. And meanwhile, like, my stock in Raytheon goes up, up, up. You know, maximizing vaccine uptake is going to, be the best thing for the health of the force for the COVID vaccine. Meanwhile, my stock in tenant healthcare goes up seven figures, right? So it's like they work in, in concert like that. It's efficient self-deception, whatever you want to call it, but that's kind of how I see it. Uh, Mark. Damn. Okay. Well, so much has happened since my original, uh, since the point I originally wanted to make, um, which was, I think about the, the idea of you know you know a unipolar world being a victory condition which was way back um i think john might have been the first one to dip his toe into that or maybe it was grant but in any case i agree with that i agree that like again that's a crazy uh victory condition uh essentially an impossible one um at least not for the long term um i don't even think for the short term uh, but then Daniel jumped in with some interesting stuff, uh, that made me reconsider a few things. So I think the first thing, the first, the initial question that Daniel was, it was asking, I think is something on the order of how much of this is planned, how much of what looks like it might be, um, stupidity is like a, you know, maybe not smart, but like a, a more hubristic, broader stupidity, like maybe hubris stacked upon hubris. Um, uh, so in other words, at one level, yeah, you may have true believers. You may have, as Grant says, like these people that embrace something like a utilitarian humanism, which doesn't even really make any sense. It's kind of a, it's kind of a contradiction, but suppose it, you know, again, we're not we're not accusing these people of being sane. We're you know, we're not accusing them of making sense. That's the last thing in the world that we would accuse them of. So yeah, maybe at some certain strata, uh, there is this kind of pseudo-religious 
belief that says, hey, like, let's put this drag queen out um, as a Navy advertisement because it's the right thing to do. Um, that could be extant at a certain level. At a different level, you might have people that are saying something along the lines of, uh, we need to change the composition of forces. We need to find a find some kind of spiritual unity, any kind of spiritual unity, even if it's something like we we you know we we find as many you know angry transsexuals as we can, and we arm them, and we tell them who their enemies are, and we and, and we unleash them like wild dogs. Like they may, in other words, have a broken understanding of spiritual unity and be striving for that. I, I think I see that all over the AI debate, for example. I see it in lots of debates, lots of um, debates that are bubbling up to the surface, even in cryptocurrencies. You, you're beginning to see people reaching really far for some manner of like capturing and holding spiritual energy um, that because again, as it seems we all agree, and I'm glad we disagree on some things, but it seems we all agree that like that is really like the most important capital, the most important resource when you're engaged in some sort of war. And if we consider that like these people are engaged in the kind of a end game war where they see themselves as becoming something like the masters of the universe, something like like a, an eternal order. Um, and I use and I use the word in, eternal intentionally. I was um, I was just watching uh, just to bring art back into it. I was watching um, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade the other night. And the, the character of um, Martin Donovan has always been very interesting to me. He's the philanthropist, millionaire, uh, uh, rich guy who's funding the expedition uh, for the search for the Holy Grail. And at the end of it, he says something super interesting, probably the best line in all of those films, maybe in anything that Spielberg ever wrote or was attributed to. And it was, uh, it was that, you know, the Nazis want to rule the world. Well, they're welcome to it. You know, I'll be toasting to my own life, you know, long after they've gone the way of the dodo. And what he was saying was interesting because it's like the Nazis exist in his, in Martin Donovan's uh, model of reality. The Nazis exist at a certain stratum and of hubris where they say like, ah, we're going to conquer the world. Yeah, good luck with that. Right. What are you going to do with it after you conquer it? How are you going to hold it? How are you going to keep it? Um, which means that, like, even if victory was possible, which I agree with everybody else, not. It's not. Not even for a moment, probably. It, even a moment would be illusory. Um, but suppose that they did. It's sort of like, you know, there is another layer stacked above of hubris of people that, you know, again, we're talking about transhumanists that believe not only eternal life of the soul, but eternal life of the body. Um, in other words, they they have cobbled together their own weird sort of spiritual um, framework, some spiritual superstructure in which they're hanging all of these various projects and and uh, and um, uh, short term goals. And like I I think that if we recognize this, then like I 
I think it makes it a lot easier in, in a strange way to interpret their movements. So when they, you know, maybe, maybe Dan's right. Maybe there is also a strain that says, ah, you know, I can have an army of lunatics at my disposal and they will be ultimately compliant because I will fuel their delusions because I will tell them everything that they want to hear. And what they, what they want to hear is quite simple. They want to hear that they are exactly what they claim to be and they want their egos to be massaged on a, on a daily basis, that, that they're essentially children in adults' bodies and like psychotic children at that. Yeah, that's possible. Good luck with that. You know, I'll point to Bud Light. You know what I mean? Good luck with that, U.S. military. Good luck with that, Bud Light. Good luck with the, the assembling your army of Dylan Mulvaney's because, quite frankly, there just aren't enough of them. It's, again, an example of hubris at multiple levels that fails because it it rejects reality. Uh, go ahead, Luke. If it was Luke. Yeah, so I, I just... Uh... Start the closing statements round here uh, with a quick uh, point I just thought about when I heard you talk, Grand and Mark, um, about this question you know, hubris versus malice or um, stupidity versus planning and all that. Because I just watched the Netflix documentary uh, Chimp Empire. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure if you heard of it, but it's really excellent. I can highly recommend it. There was a great interview on Joe Rogan with with a guy who who made it as well. Uh, it's really spectacular. Uh, it's a chimp documentary, basically, but one you you have never seen before like that. It's crazy. Really, they spent like uh, 400 days filming like all day long in the jungle, and uh, basically part of the of the chimp troop for that time. It's just absolutely crazy um anyway and so uh, this raises some interesting questions right about like um our relationship to the animal world and one thing that struck me when watching this because that obviously they dramat dramatized it right for the film so the, the the narrator um you know says things like oh and war is coming to the tribe you know and things like that or um you know it's kind of like spins spins kind of a narrative around it and and even projects you know some humanity onto them while he's doing so but you know and here's my point um it's kind of maybe similar with that kind of stupidity and hubris versus like planned malice kind of discussion right because what this narrator says about those chimpanzees right it's it's a narrative a human narrative but it is true Right. I mean, this is really what is going on, you know, when he's describing those dynamics. Um, that is what is going on. It's just from the perspective of the chimps, uh, thing looks different, right? So they may not be aware of that kind of story arc, but they are playing out the story clearly, you know. And uh and so what if that is kind of like our relationship to God, you know, the higher and and those people who are like in in power and and being stupid and and full of hubris and stuff they just they're just stupid and and just worthless POSs right i mean uh, that's just who they are and what they do um and the larger story maybe you know god sees that or like whatever and and it's kind of the narrator that can give a nar narrative about it and uh, and that is true as well 
you know? So it's just that those people are not aware of it, but they're part of a drama uh, that can be discerned and maybe we can discern it as well. You know, if we look at it um, uh, uh, from a certain perspective. So yeah, so that's my, my thesis of the day. I'll go next just to keep it moving along. Um, and then whoever wants to follow me, just go ahead and raise hand or, or drop in the chat if, uh, if you don't have anything left. But uh, I'm, I'm pretty hopeful about the future because, uh, you know, this uh, essay, it's, it's too long to be an essay. It's almost like a book that um, I'm reviewing now. It's It gives me a lot of hope because they're, you know, you can take, existing military doctrine and you can uh, interpose a spiritual domain onto multi-domain operations and you can do so in a way that resonates it's very useful and i think it's what we can use to get back on the right track because this is something that i've been trying to talk about for a while like hey spiritual conflict going on but i'm a new you know i'm a nominal atheist and um like i'm i'm just a junior field grade so, you know, what do I know? Um, but it turns out there's people with more experience than me that do know this stuff and that put time into thinking about it and putting it all together. And I think that there there is a way ahead, you know, in terms of leadership and we're trying to get everybody back on the same page. You know, we talk a lot about Chris Langan and, um, you know, the, the CTMU and a matter of religion. Um, I think there's there's some way to kind of use that in order to get some sort of unity of purpose, uh, at least at the national level, uh, for us Americans and then for you know, other individual nations, uh, to select leadership that can do the same for them, go forward and have a multipolar world. And, um, you know, there'd be conflicts over resources and stuff, but, um, at the end of the day, I think it would be a, a lot less volatile. And, um, there, I think there's a lot of hope there for humanity to come together and, um, have our own little multipolar things, differences in America, like dropping the federal system on that. We have even more particularity within the United States because states can have different rules and I can get over some of the big, you know, local conflicts over, you know, abortion and the trade-off between, um, you know mother's rights versus rights of unborn children, et cetera. Um, I, I think there's a way ahead. I really do. And I, I don't think that World War III is inevitable. I think that uh, there's a spiritual conflict going on or the good guys are destined to win. Um, so, yeah, since nobody else has anything uh, to add, thank you all for joining us on Tonic Discussions Episode 5, World War III. Uh, until next time.